This is Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of these series, I've been chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod about what they've learned about life and theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. In a couple of weeks, they will open a new production of Sophocles' play Oedipus Rex at the National Theatre Martin Sorescu in Romania. I sat down with Declan, just before the start of rehearsals, to hear more about his hunches for the show. So, hello Declan. Hello Lucy. So today we're going to talk about your next production, which is taking place in Romania, and that is Oedipus. Yeah. What is it about Sophocles that really appeals to you? It's difficult to say. There's something transgressive and something that's very subtle about him. And it's again comes back to this business of judgment that I'm always going on about. He does suspend judgment and he doesn't allow us to blame very easily. And people are very often in these extremely intense situations. And he sees them quite objectively and he asks us to see that as well. So it's a, I think it's a great tonic. Also, the plays are very, very exciting. They're very kind of political. They're very, very interesting about families and um, about politics. And they start off, um, as does Aeschylus, actually, this incredible thing between you know, my relationship with myself, with my family and with the state. And why Oedipus in particular? The play's always fascinated me. There's an extraordinary thing about Oedipus whenever I see it. I've seen it so often in so many different countries, so many different languages. And I don't know why... But I know the plot, we all know the plot very well, but it still always manages to surprise me. It's extraordinary. I don't know how Sophocles pulls that off. And he puts you through the process that I think Oedipus goes through in the play, which is you discover what you already knew. And that's what I find really frightening about Oedipus and really important. It's the way that we deny things that we know, cover them up, and we kind of know them, and then when we discover them, they're a big shock. But then you think... But somehow, I kind of always knew that, didn't I? Did I? And that's, I mean, that's the most extraordinary thing in Oedipus. And just to do that is, is a great privilege to be able to do that. So do you think that part of Oedipus knows from the very beginning of the play exactly what he's done? That he knows what the reality is, that he is sleeping with his mother and that he's killed his father and that the source of the plague of the city is him. That some part of him recognises that and he's just trying to run away from acknowledging it. Yes, that's exactly what I think. That somewhere, I think they all know. And that's what's so creepy about it. Because if it was a big shock, you know, like in a murder series on TV, you know, oh, he did it. Um, it It doesn't have that unsettling effect that's deeply shocking. So... There's such a misleading thing, I think, said about Greek tragedy, which is that in Greek tragedy, the dramatic action always takes place off the stage. And on stage, we see people reacting to uh, the dramatic action, which has taken place often enough. That's complete nonsense. And the dramatic action of Oedipus is his slow realisation of what he's done. That is what the dramatic action is. It's not the fact that he's sleeping with his mother and has murdered his father. It's him realising it. It's him bringing it into his conscious mind in front of us and his terrible, desperate, increasingly wild attempts to deny what he already knows. I find that incredibly moving in Oedipus. And so Oedipus is also a very good post-pandemic play because it starts with the plague. It's true. If we are post-pandemic, yes. 
of course it is. And um, well, that's why he starts on this thing. He's desperate. He has to find the cure for the plague. And then he's going to discover that in this strange way, he is somehow responsible for this disease. Nietzsche brilliantly said that we invented guilt, humans invented guilt, in order not to feel out of control. Because if we felt that we brought something like the plague on ourselves, that didn't mean we were the victims of some random universe, that we somehow had a say in it. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, that we will do anything to give ourselves some sense of control. But there's, it's definitely implicit. There's a magical thing implicit in the play that what Oedipus has done is somehow responsible for the plague and that his denial of what's happened is causing this huge disease to take over his city and the city is somehow him. And I know you've got a quite interesting hunch you want to put two characters on stage that don't have any lines in the original Sophocles play. Who's that? Yes, I sort of hate talking about it because it's in the future. But at the moment, what I think is that, that his supposed parents, who are called Polybus and Merope, are alive and well. And we've cast two actors. We're very lucky to have two wonderful actors to play those parts. But they will be mute. The real problem is that one of the reasons we can never get a new idea into our heads is because there's an old one already there that we can't get rid of. And the reason that Oedipus can't one of the one of the sort of stoppers that keeps his bottle blocked is that he doesn't need new parents because he's got a perfectly good set of parents who are Polybus and Merope, whom he's left back in Corinth. And he, he believes that these are his biological parents, and in fact they're known as his adoptive parents. Um, and his real parents are Laius and Jocasta. So he can't get the new idea into his head because he's so obsessed with his parents, as so many of us are. But he can't get them out of his head. He can't let the new thought in because there's an old one in its place. And it's to do with kind of shifting old certainties. And that's one of the reasons why he's frozen. And he has to give up this idea that these are his parents. And that's why they are, I think, central to his experience of the play because they're alive. And he's run away to save them. And like a lot of terrible things that happen in the world, they're done to protect the ones we love. And... Um, so that's something also to be thought about, that just because you're doing something to protect the one you love doesn't mean to say you can't be doing terrible damage as well. And what excites me about this idea of bringing them on stage is something you said several times before in these podcasts, which is that an idea doesn't exist on stage unless it's embodied. It has to live in bodies for it to be legible. So bringing them on stage as living, breathing bodies means you can actually create that dynamic potently in the middle of the play yes that's exactly what i'd like to do i'd like to make them carnal living things because they are in oedipus's imagination and it's very important that i put on stage somehow what's happening in oedipus's imagination and he's he's absolutely obsessed with these two parents and he has heard the prophecy that he's going to murder his father and sleep with his mother and he imagines it's these two people um, and that's a complete fixation for him through the whole play and so he can't let them die. His identity is bound up with the fact that he mustn't do this terrible thing to his father and he mustn't do this terrible thing to his mother. And he's so um, wound up in the catastrophe that might befall him if he does these things that he can't actually see the slow catastrophe that he's bringing about in the present moment. So it's like he's so frightened of this catastrophe in the past that he can't live responsibly in the present. And yet some part of him really knows what's happening all the time. Yes part that he can't admit to you know the one thing that i think i say to directors when i'm teaching them which i've started to do now is terribly unpopular and i say that the problems you probably know already all the information you need but you 
possibly need to learn to reorder it in a different way. There's no kind of new magic thing I'm going to give you, but I can maybe reorder things that will help you maybe think about things somewhat differently. So, yeah, that's very important for me. And I know you've also got another hunch about this play. It's going to be a play that moves. It's, it's going yes, to be site-specific. But I'm going to... I'm, <laughs> it is, yes. And we haven't worked it out yet. And it can I notoriously notoriously change our minds at the last minute so it could end up being absolutely static i never i never know how it's going to work out so without any promises that it's going to move what was the hunch behind exploring that route for this play that that oedipus himself is on a journey and he's on a journey to discover himself and he doesn't know that he's on a journey to discover himself so it's good if he can displace and, and move in the space and the audience moves with him but maybe we can't do that we'll do something else we'll discover something better we've been talking a lot in these podcasts about this idea of thresholds yes either literal or metaphorical places in the scene where everything changes and you talk a lot about how in theater crossing a threshold is a very stressful thing to do like just getting people on and off stage yes because so much is at play whenever anybody enters or exits a space it completely changes their body um it involves either an escape or being pushed. Mm. And there's something really exciting in, in this idea of following Oedipus around as he crosses into new spaces. As we cross new spaces. Of, yeah, you have to go through a series of escapes with him as he tries to find a solution to the situation. Yes, yeah, just pick up that point for directors particularly that getting people on stage and off stage is almost as important as at the actual scene. Oh my goodness, isn't it though? It's, <laughs> it's, it's so really, hard. I know, well, you know, Lucy. But, you know, I must say that Nick always solves that for me because he and we don't ever even talk about it but it's like where the entrances are it's sort of always sort of there somehow in this very simple set like the three boxes in in measure for measure that people would move around it was incredibly clever and i hadn't really worked out how useful it was until after i'd started to use it but it's the implication of where you enter from is really important when we did Malfi, we had it was like a chessboard on the floor, but it was skewed to one side so that everybody was standing at an angle. So everybody had to kind of come onto this chessboard, not full square to the audience, which gave a kind of sickening feeling to the whole thing that nobody ever stared out full front, or if they did, it was very unusual. But people always met on this diagonal. So just the getting people on and the getting people off is really really um, difficult but it can open the whole scene absolutely and there's nothing worse than a dead exit or a dead entrance because there's so much potential there to basically create the starting gun for the next moment exactly and in a movie you don't have that because people can suddenly start in the scene but what does matter in the movie is the cut the cuts the threshold and it's absolutely crucial the moment you cut not too soon not too late where from what, what shot do you start with it's incredibly important and you can completely destroy or completely make a movie in the cut. And what's so interesting about having this conversation now, actually, is that you were thinking of doing Oedipus a whole 18 months ago, completely yes. different production of Oedipus with a completely different company. Yes, yes. And there were some early hunches for the design there, which couldn't have been more different from this production of Oedipus. Really, I can't remember our hunches for the design. Nick was, Nick was suggesting putting them on a white background mm. and doing sharp blackouts between scenes so you never saw entrances or exits you just saw cinematic oh, yes, movie cuts so which is almost the exact opposite of this approach Deedabus. yes I've a, i think i've got to tell i think I suppose it's a survival mechanism i sort of wipe previous versions out of my mind <laughs> otherwise i go crazy because i have to commit to the one that we're doing at the moment but we'll go along with this idea and, and throw it around with the actors and see what happens and, and see how well it works but it's another joyous thing about having conversations with you and nick about the work that you do because you are so playful and free in the way that you will light upon a really powerful idea explore it inside out and then chuck it over your shoulder if it's not going to 
work for what you need in that moment or if your interests change or if the company gives you something else to work with than you expected you hold on tightly to things but you let go so lightly and that's a that must be really difficult to do i think in a way it is but in a way i think nothing gets thrown away all the different ways you've done it all go into a stew in your imagination your your imagination is continually being nourished by all of these things so in a way i'm afraid i'm not sure we ever can throw anything away i think on the whole we forget nothing and you're right because in a way these two opposite ideas are in fact running laps around the same fascination in the play which is the entrances and exits in oedipus are breathtakingly crucial and the two radically different approaches that we're talking about, one in which the audience follows Oedipus through every entrance and exit, mm. and the other in which you never see the entrance and exit at all, you just mm. see the jump cut between the two. Yeah. Both of them, you're actually circling the same... Yes, there's the same kind of site of anxiety, mm. which is the coming on and the going off. But it's something I find really inspiring, because it, it's so deliciously appealing to have a great idea and then hold on to it. It's very, It can feel very comforting as a director. In a way, yes. Actually, what I would say, though, is that a great idea is a kind of oxymoron, that ideas aren't that much. It's life that's important. And I think there's no such thing as a great idea, that actually they come, they go. Theory's cheap. The important thing is life. And there's also a kind of haunting thing in this play that I'd love to talk to you about, which is that once Oedipus discovers the horror of what's really happened, and once he finds the body of his mother and wife, Jocasta, hanging from her own underwear in their bedroom... He doesn't choose to kill himself. He chooses to blind himself. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, it's a very discomforting play because Oedipus's truth costs Jocasta her life. So I I think it asks us questions, is it always a good idea to be a truth champion? On the whole, we feel it is because the truth is good and lies are bad. But there is collateral damage. I think the terrible thing about the blinding of Oedipus, it reminds me of a a line in As You Like It, when Rosalind says to Celia about Orlando, I cannot live out of the sight of Orlando. It's like the image of her in his eyes keeps her alive. That's such an extraordinary image. And that's the terrible thing that happens when somebody that we love dies, because they don't just die, they take the image they had of us with them into the grave. And so part of us dies with somebody because we'll never see that person smile again. Oedipus, um, I think he cannot bear the sight of his children seeing him. And he blinds himself so that he can't see their eyes seeing him back. That's why I think he does it. And I think that's incredibly moving because it does remind us how relational we are. But he can't, it's like he can't live without the loving look of his of his daughters his mania and antigone he he can't he can't deal with that and he blinds himself so that you won't have to see them you won't have to see that facial expression so I, I find that incredibly moving at the end of oedipus and we you know, we imagine things in, in people's eyes when they see us the look the expression in other people's eyes when they see us it gives us life and it gives us death as well for listening to this bonus episode of Not True But Useful. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can find lots of past series on the Cheek by Jowl website or on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And the music you're hearing now was composed by Sergei Chekrashov for Cheek by Jowl's production of Three Sisters. Look out for more bonus episodes in the weeks to come. <laughs>